Hello, you are listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on May 7th, 2018 at the Centre d'études Maghrebine à In this episode, Dr. Munir Khalifa, professor at the University of Tunis, presents a lecture entitled Why William Wordsworth is Needed Today. <laughs> The importance of William Wordsworth for our culture today, an exorbitant title. This is going to be, as you said, reflections on, this is going to be an essay in the literal sense of an attempt or a trial. So there will be some rambling thoughts, but they all lead to one, I think, statement that's up for grabs, which is that Wordsworth and his poetry are very, very important today and deserve to be spread and taught and made a public, the larger scale, perhaps in the vague hope of cultural rejuvenation. I take Wordsworth to be one of the founders of poetic modernity. All ulterior poets, including Browning, have composed under his sway in many ways, and all the commonplaces and cliches that you have about poetry, about simple things and simple life and modesty and nature and flowers and skies and singing birds come possibly from Wordsworth. So without much ado, I should like in this talk to undertake two things. Identify the reasons why Wordsworth had been hitherto neglected by Arab readers and critics, like other English poets, and make the claim that those reasons are exactly what hinder the progress or the regeneration of Arab culture. The latter is a large and perhaps exorbitant claim, but I'll try to make it and defend it. Inversely, I will suggest that an appropriate understanding of the poet would, at this very historical juncture, suggest answers or parts of answers to many of the moral troubles and intellectual quandaries vexing Arabs today. And that to translate, teach, publicize the poetry is needful in a larger project of cultural rejuvenation. This is by no means an easy task, nor is it obvious, for the promotion of a poet or an artist cannot be realized by a wish however passionate, or a decree, however potent. In literary history, a poet's relevance is not predicated on a plea, or an argument, or a wish, or a defense, or a fiat. Since Aristotle's poetics, at least, we know that poets are immortal only inasmuch as they survive in their poetic progenies. That is, in poets they beget through influence and authority. It is erroneous belief that the Republic of Letters is governed by powerful academies, persuasive scholars, scientific council, or by the critical community taken as a diffuse and pervasive entity. No, the Republic of Letters is ruled only by the man of letters themselves. This is what is often meant when we say that the art is the expression of liberty and democracy. 
Nero did rid himself of Lucan eventually, but he did not miraculously become a better poet. Two provisions before I proceed further. First, I am not unaware that the major limitation of my proposal consists in advocating nothing less than a revolution in the Arab poetic taste. That it will appear that I am suggesting that poetic discourse can achieve beauty and persuasion by aiming at the simple and the natural in diction, but also in the mode of being in the world. That effective poetry need not deploy inflated rhetoric and extravagant imagery, as is the case in Arabic poetry today. Now, ironically, this is precisely what Wordsworth and Coleridge, exasperated by the gaudiness, this is a quotation from the preface to the lyrical ballads they put out together in 1798, the gaudiness and inane phraseology of 18th century neoclassical poetry set out doing when they published together their joint collection of poems, the Lyrical Ballads. Their aim then was nothing less than to bring poetry closer to the concerns of the common people, the real man. To the question, what is a poet? Wordsworth replies, and I quote Wordsworth here, he is a man speaking to man, a man endued with more lively sensibility and knowledge of human nature, etc. But nevertheless, above everything, he is a man. The second proviso is the seeming duplication of my argument. For if Arab readers, and Arabs, by the way, are a very rare nation, still enthused by its poets, either adulating them or persecuting them, have persistently neglected Wordsworth, a poet placed by Matthew Arnold amongst Europe's six greater geniuses, and one whom John Stuart Mill, when in depression, found to be a medicine for his state of mind, then this ignorance must stem from a certain repugnance towards his poetry. In other terms, Arab readers must have found something in Wordsworth poetry, a tone or a quality, a tendency or a mood, that they considered alien, perplexing, and perhaps offensive. Before expatiating on this objectionable quality, let me hasten to say that it has nothing to do with the so-called native virtues of Englishness. Undeniably, Wordsworth is quintessentially English, but he's not so in a higher degree than, say, William Shakespeare, who is literally worshipped by Arabs. But not facetiously. No, Arabs are not impervious to English poetry as such. In addition to Shakespeare, they also greatly admire T.S. Eliot and Jerry Manley Hopkins, and Browning for that matter, to name but three poets closer to us in time. Now, to stay within the compass of the Romantic period, Arabs do have their favorite poets. They adulate, for instance, William Blake, and Lord Byron is a favorite amongst them, and also Shelley. All these are Wordsworth contemporaries. These are held in very high esteem by Arab audiences, if one judges by them in any translation these poets have enjoyed since they were, so to speak, discovered at the second half of the 19th century. And here is perhaps an avenue for my topic. For I would like promptly to suppose that the quality or rather qualities that Arab readers valued in these three poets are precisely those in which they had thought words were deficient. To illustrate my point, I should like to quote very well-known instances from each of these three poets. My intent through this selection is to attempt to circumscribe these qualities and show how removed they are from anything in Wordsworth poetry. After which, I would return to my initial proposal 
the one that I formulated at the beginning of this talk, which is to contend that a genuine comprehension of Wordsworth poetry and what Wordsworth stands for are needful for this Arab politics in Arab world today. I will start with Blake's famous claim voiced in his notebooks. The claim, by the way, is now a wallpaper. I see through my eyes, not with them. Unquote. So here, organic vision is time-eyed, cancelled. The bodily eye is obstructed and its function reduced to an empty conduit. And what the poet sees is not natural objects or the external world, but the figment of his own imagination. Natural sight makes way for supernatural visionariness. This is what happens in Blake. We cannot talk about perception here as such, even in the dictionary sense of the quality of being aware of things through the physical sense, especially sight. This is the Cambridge Dictionary, by the way. For the poet claim a direct access to the world of imagination or the world of the spirit. Elsewhere in the notebooks, Blake also affirms that when he looks at the sun, he sees not the day star, but he beholds a choir of angels singing Hosanna. This is powerful imagination for you. More sweetly, but with some praise for imaginative power, Keats has declared in the Over the Nightingale that heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweet. Celebration of the imagination is hardly surprising in romantic poetry. Romanticism as a holistic transformation of culture, society, aesthetics, philosophy, and politics is precisely predicated on the supremacy of imagination, a supreme faculty of mind over reason, inherited from 18th century neoclassic classicism. Imagination, also named spirit, mind, consciousness, or soul, is deemed the truest power of understanding the world and construing poetic truth. Yet, it is this unchecked exaltation of the imagination that Wordsworth is suspicious of and mostly fears. For him, it leads to what his most astute modern commentator, Jeffrey Hartman, has called the apocalyptic imagination. That is, a form of knowledge that is cut off from nature, nature here is capital N, grounded only in mind processes, in rationating reason, and therefore always threatened by excesses. To check this ungrounded imagination, Wordsworth proposes its adversary, which is nature. Nature here is the importance of sensory perception. So, against the uselessness of the eye, Wordsworth opposes its tyranny. And again, tyranny, I put, is quoted the very word that he uses in Tentenabi. There is persistently in the poetry a fascination with the compulsion of seeing, which is, he readily construes as a renewed bond and connectedness with nature. Through eye and ear, we connect with the world, and even in moments of heightened imagination, moments of utter visionariness, the primacy of the eye still remains effective. Wordsworth never tires of celebrating, quote, the mighty world of eye and ear. Here are two well-known lines from Tintin Abbey. With an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things, unquote. Though under the sway of the impassioned mind, the eye stays clear-sighted and enlightened. It discerns the object it's beholding, however sublimely obscure it may appear. The exact meaning of seeing into the life of things is still unclear, but it describes an eye that is disciplined by nature. And I use the word discipline in the double sense of educated 
and at the same time chastised. So very unlike Blake's eye that is obstructed and yet still enjoys direct access to the visionary world of a nothingness, Wordsworth grounds sight into the world of palpable nature. My second example is from Byron. It is the opening stanza of Don Juan's fifth canto. Quote, I want a hero, an uncommon one, when every year and month sends forth a new one, till after cloying the gazettes with count, the age discovered is not the true one. More than the dearth of authentic heroes, the speaker poet here deplores the age's imperviousness to the dearth. The lament is reinforced by a double bind. The time is unheroic because it has lost its capacity to recognize genuine heroes or distinguish them from false and ephemeral ones. Yet it is worth asking who these short-lived heroes are. Well, they are not much different from Andy Warhol's ordinary man and women who enjoy 15 minutes of fame in the modern age. That is, common people. But what does it mean to say that after the Gazette's glorification, that is public opinion, the acclaimed hero is found out to be not the true one, to say that someone is deficient in heroic virtues is to say he is a common. And it is this commonness, the democratic claim to heroism for every man, that explains the virility of the poet speakers and common want, and which is the programmatic statement of Wordsworth in every single preface and poem about ordinary life that is written. Now, this aristocratic notion of courage and heroism cannot be any further from Wordsworth. From the poets never cease to extol wise passiveness and the desire for humble life and the discharge of duty. This is a quotation from Lionel Trilling describing Wordsworth poetry. His heroes, already announced in the preface of lyrical ballads, are rustic and lowly characters. Peasants, shepherds, leech gatherers, discharged soldiers, vagrants, forsaken mothers, peddlers, old beggars, coppagers, gypsies, idiots, boys and the formidable tenant farmer Michael in the eponymous pastoral poem at Margaret in the ruined cottage. These are all common people in Byron's canto, unheroic. And this is the modern quality of Wordsworth poetry, that everyone can aspire to be a hero simply by discharging the ordinary duties of life. I concur with Paul Fry that the most common adjective in Wordsworth poetry is actually common. Matthew Arnold, one of his best readers of the 19th century, exemplary Wordsworthian line is from the prelude. It goes like this. There was all the sweetness of a common dawn. This is from book four. My last example is from Shelley. Two lines selected from the fourth standard of the Ode to the West Wing. And the lines are, Oh, lift me as a wave, a leaf, a cloud. I fall upon the thorns of life, I bleed. These are the lines from... The old. There is a cliché about bleeding upon the thorns of life. It's too awkwardly emotional for modern taste. It's almost puerile. It would be too shrill and vociferous, over-emotional for Wordsworth, in whose poetry the reader would look in vain for similar examples. There are, by all means, effusions and gushing out of passion. There is no such frenetic effusion of sentiments. Composure and the mastery of feelings and of language, a relentless war waged against mawkishness and insincerity and pathos, the poetic use of what he called the real language of man, again the quotation from the 18, 1800 preface to lyrical ballads, have been from the start Wordsworth's aim. The aim is also affirmed in a quatrain in the middle part 
of the ballad Hard Leap Well. The quatrain reads like a programmatic statement. Quote, the moving accident is not my trade. To freeze the blood, I have no ready art. Tis my pleasure in summer shade to pipe a simple song for a thinking heart. Unquote. In the well-known definition of poetry, again, the latter is described as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings recollected in tranquility. It is the recollection in tranquility in this quotation that matters. He also said, I never made a present joy a matter of my song. The deferral of passion and feelings for Wordsworth, of thinking heart and admire the chiasmus, is both a test for the genuineness of the emotion and an occasion for its tempering and moderation. Recollection in tranquility confers to the passion a kind of pudeur, a moderation and a soberness to the passionate mood, as though through composition Wordsworth aspires at some kind of deeper composure of the mind. It may have by now become apparent that notwithstanding their vastly individual talents, what Blake, Shelley and Byron have in common is a propensity for excess, or the word in vogue today would be a certain radicalism or militancy, both in language, in feeling and in thought. And against this militancy, this, and I quote again from Lionel Treeling, this predilection for the powerful, the fierce, the assertive, the personally heroic, Wordsworth proposes a quiet, all-encompassing love for all things great and small, a mild feeling that he extends to all living things, and I quote, the meanest flower that blows give me thoughts that lie often too deep for tears. Lines from the Intimations Ode, and even to insensate objects. In the prelude, he says, and to the paving stone, in the road I gave a moral being. More importantly, the poetry teaches us that the bonds of society have to be inner and habitual and moderate. This remarkable disillusionment, for example, with the French Revolution, and after his early enthusiasm, when he said bliss was it in that dawn to be alive and to be young was very heaven, started when he understood that the revolutionaries were bent on severing those bonds with nature. Nature here again with capital N. Thus rendering the quotation from the prelude, he gives the reason why he fell off with the revolutionaries after his early enthusiasm. All things were to me loose and disjoined, and the affections left without a vital interest. Synonym of interest you might find in the dictionary include passion, care, significance, relevance, and such like idioms. For this is the fear, is that man's relationship with the natural world ceases to be meaningful. This is greatest fear of word. That man becomes a strange creature moving in an unresponsive world. At the end of the intimation's ode, he makes this imploration, all oh, your meadows, streams, and groves, forbid not any sufferings of our loves. We must read this like the Cumberland people perhaps used to say, all oh, your meadows, streams, and groves, forbid not any suffering of our loves. This is possibly close to his diction. Such fear is genuine and productive. It is the stuff of modern poetry and art. It has led Blake to forsake the material world and seek visionariness like the prophets of old. It has led Shelley to call in pain and frustration for the powers of nature to come to his aid 
and it has led Byron, ironically perhaps, we must give this to Byron, to yearn or pretend to yearn to a bygone world of chivalric and aristocratic virtues. But Wordsworth never ceases to celebrate our primary affections, our organic bond with the world and the mutual connectedness with nature and the mind, which he calls kindred mutations. For in this bonding lies human strength. His poetry is one that taught us to feel in wintry clime. This is from the memorial verses by Matthew Arnold. Ralph Waldo Emerson also said, the stage of Concord once said that Wordsworth did more for the sanity of our generation than any other writer. And I think sanity here is the key word. The values are those, and the sanity is predicated on the values of moderation, gravity, and commonness. Now, it is these qualities precisely that are considered most unpoetic in Arab culture. And though poets must be excessive and angry and strike the reader's imagination with extreme and sometimes absurd images. This is not a comparative essay. I propose here yet a center selection of verses culled from two prestigious and by all means, by all means, very sober poets, not hysterical, Kabani and Darwish, to illustrate my point. This is from Nizar Kabani. It's a love poem. This love poem has this stanza. In the summer, I stretch out on the shore and think of you. Had I told the sea what I felt for you, it would have left its shores, its shells, its fish, and followed me. Now, every Arab reader will find this absolutely hauntingly beautiful. And it is. But obviously here the poet speaker's feeling of love is oceanic. Yet the image of the sea, forced to forsake its bed, and all the creatures living therein, at the mere surmise, is not even spoken out, at the mere thought of hearing the poet's declaration of passion to his beloved, and saunter behind the poet like a poodle would behind its master, is simply Shelley also used the sea imagery in the Ode to the West Wind, quoted earlier. His long metaphor also verges on the incongruous, but it still remains within the realm of the sublime. The lines from stanza three in Ode to the West Wind, also about the sea, like Kabani is about the sea, is this. Here Shelley is talking to the West Wind as a divine or godly power that subdues the sky, waves throughout. And here the wind dominates or has a mastery over the ocean. West wind blows through the Atlantic, comes across the Mediterranean and comes to the place where he was sitting. And he says, Thou, talking to the wind, for whose path the Atlantic level spouts cleave themselves into casps, while far below the sea blooms and the oozy woods, which wear the sapless foliage of the ocean, now thy voice and suddenly grow grey with fear and tremble and despoil themselves. Oh, here. The Atlantic Ocean here opens up, or caves in, if you like, to make a pathway for the west wind, like a sea boat. And the ocean bed, flora trembles, and the west wind's roaring voice, and out of fear, loses its foliage. This is the image. The imagery of trembling nature before superior power, and the only superior power above nature is that of the gods. Shelley knows his classics. And the imagery of a trembling forest and parting sea before the divine power harks back to the Iliad. In Book 13, Homer describes warlike Poseidon, 
racing on his chariot over the waves to help the Greeks, who had been undone on the 28th day of battle by the Trojans, mainly by Hector. And this is what Homer says. The high hills and the forest trembled, and the peaks and the city of Troy and the Achaean ships under the mortal feet of Poseidon as he went his way. He drove over the waves, and the sea monsters gambled around him, coming up everywhere out of the deep. They recognized their king, and the sea parted in joy, and the horses flew onward. I mean, we can see that Shelley was very much beholden to this passage from the Iliad. But at least the passageway, by the way, is quoted in the earliest treaties that we have on the sublime, which is Longinus's Perihipsus of the first century. The anonymous author uses this passage, quoted from the Iliad, to illustrate how sublimity operates in poetry by the usage of fearful and awe-inspiring imagery. Kabani's image of the sea collecting itself and leaving its bed and creatures to roll behind the enamored poet, on the other hand, belittles the sea and aggrandizes the poet's powers of evocation. Beyond the conceit of pathetic fallacy and sympathetic imagination, I am tempted to consider the poet here in this conceit as a Pied Piper. I'm sure you are familiar with the legend of the Pied Piper. In a metaphorical sense, that is, if you open the Merriam Dictionary, Webster Dictionary, you will find this Pied Piper. Metaphor A, a charismatic person who attracts followers. B, a musician who attracts mass. C, a leader who makes irresponsible promises. Closer to us, I think. All these senses are acceptable in the Kabani verses, but none of them raises the aesthetic emotion we associate with the sublime. Again from Nizar Kabani, these couple of lines. We need an angry generation, a generation to plow the horizons. To plow the horizon is magnificent as an image, denoting the sterility of the Arab present culture, for instance, and that there is hope in future regeneration by a new generation, by new future Arabs. This is also a metaphor very much akin to the expression to labor in hope in English. The expression could also mean to work miracles. We are waiting for powerful generation to work miracles for us. Yet the image again is absurd. For if horizon designates a receding line, then this miraculous labor is destined to be eternally postponed, making the trope counterproductive in the general sense of the lyric. Now I move on to another prominent, celebrated, very much again unhysterical poet, Mahmoud Darwish, and in his poem, Raida, sometimes entitled The ID Poem. I quote simply the concluding stanza in full. It goes like this. Therefore, I for one do not hate my fellow man, and I assault no one. But if I am ever made to starve, I shall eat the flesh of my despoiler. Beware, beware of my hunger and my anger. Metaphors of cannibalism, when they do occur in art or in literature, are usually connected with morbid pathology of certain sexual perversion, or as allegories of consummate revenge and destruction. Even in the Elizabethan theatre, Titus Andronicus, probably composed by Shakespeare in the early 1590s and regarded as a juvenile, and Christopher Marlowe's Jew of Malta, composed around the same period, are something of a gore. Harold Bloom has contended that these tragedies 
when attended by Elizabethan audiences the way today we would watch a horror movie. I have never encountered them in modern poetry. I've never seen scenes of cannibalism, perhaps in allusion in Conrad's uh, Heart of Darkness, but otherwise it's extremely rare, unless we're talking about anthropological treaties, essays, and so on. But in the context of hunger resulting from land dispossession of land, it is not extant. Write down, I am an Arab, this is another poem, is a very well-measured poem in its themes and in its diction. It's not a rabid poem. It's not an effusion cry out of pain or anger against the despoiler. No, certainly not. It is moving precisely because of the restrained and controlled pathos of describing Palestinian and Arab plight today. It's a highly charged topic, and it could easily turn into over-emotional treatment, but not in Darwish's poem. The poem, by the way, has four sections, and each one coincided more or less with a verse paragraph beginning right down. And once the four stanzas, the first stanza is about identity, the second one is about work or labor, the third one is about the ancestry or the genealogy of the poet, and the fourth one is about the stolen orchards and the land, about dispossession. And then comes the concluding stanza, therefore, I for one, if, and so on and so forth. Again, it is this ferociousness which is placed at the end of the poem as a punchline to strike the imagination of the reader. And it does strike the imagination of the reader. Suddenly this cannibalistic image that comes after otherwise extremely well and even prosaic treatment of the poem. This one precisely is what you do not find in modern poetry. This is more associated with antiquated, classical or medieval gore. That's why I think the description of social reality and the political reality is absolutely a miss when it has resolved to this kind of imagery and inflated rhetoric. This barbarousness and bloodlust are not part of the law of modernity. They are meant to freeze the blood, and here I'm quoting again Wordsworth, and say nothing to the thinking heart. In this presentation, I had absolutely no intention to attempt a comparative reading of selected poetry, either from the Romantics or between two poetic traditions, the Arabic and the English one. But I hope I have shown, at the face of it, that there are more similarities in the use of poetic language and imagery between two major Arab poets and Keats and Blake and Byron than between the latter and Wordsworth. I also hope that I have implicitly indicated that a better knowledge of Wordsworth poetry, a poetry that ultimately aims at humanizing nature and naturalizing human experience, is urgently needed in Arab culture today. A culture that more often than not is tempted by all kinds of hyperbolic excesses of rhetoric and apocalyptic imaginings. A culture, to quote Kabani again, our shouting is louder than our actions. Our swords are taller than us. That is our tragedy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, 
Like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Samat newsletter at www.samatmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for new episodes.